Hey guys, welcome to another podcast of Science Unscripted. I'm your host, Sophie Gowan, and today we will be talking about development theory and the stages of development. So, to start off, human development is the study of the changes that occur in people as they age, from conception to death. Basically, it's about what happens to people as they get older and looking at a little bit of why. So, as you may have guessed, this can be a little bit of a hard thing to research because you can't really just do a study where you track someone from life to death. I mean, I guess you can. You can probably do it with yourself, but there might be a little bit of lurking variables there. So, the research problems would be age. People cannot be randomly assigned to age groups. There's a lot of lurking variables that come with age, and it just can't happen. So, they've developed a few design types. Now, one is longitudinal. That was kind of what I was talking about earlier, where one group of people is followed and assessed as they age at different times. So, basically, you get a group of people, and you kind of assess their like them at one time, then follow up another time, a few years later, then again and again. Now... This is great. This is really, really cool because you can get a direct idea of what the aging has done to them and what it's changed in their developmental cycle. However, it's really expensive and probably pisses off one person very much because you got to keep checking up on them. So it takes a long time and it can be great, but it's really expensive. So the next one is cross-sectional. Now, this is when several age groups are studied at one time. This is great. It's quick. It's inexpensive, easier to accomplish. You get to publish your paper in a lot less time. Scientists love it. However, it no longer compares an individual to the same individual. So there's a lot of lurking variables and confounding variables. Basically, you're getting like a bunch of different age groups and studying them all at the same time. But those people might have been exposed to different experiences or different events which could have affected their development and their personality at that time. So there's a lot of confounding variables. This is called the cohort effect, which means that particular um, impact on development may occur from in a group of people based upon their shared or common experiences or events. Like per se, um, let's think about who we think about. Oh, people who were born during the time of the World Wars. So, they all had that shared common experience that people like me who were born after the World Wars didn't experience. This would lead to a significant impact in their development and who they became. So, this is a quick and easy, um, more like easy to accomplish study, but it doesn't really take into effect directly aging. So, last one is called the cross sequential design. Now, this is a combination of both. Basically, you study various ages at the same time, but then you come back like maybe like 10, 12 years later, even shorter time, and you study them again. So, you're kind of getting a little bit bit of both. It's a little bit less expensive, but more expensive than the cross-sequential, of course, Um, but it gets a little bit more into the nitty-gritty of directly aging. So, um, now, we're going to get into nature versus nurture. Now, this is a really, really controversial um, field of study. Uh, it's a huge topic in a lot of developmental designs and theories. And basically, it studies whether genetics or 
your common ex- or your sorry not common experiences but experiences throughout childhood and development which one really has the bigger effect now i believe that the way that we've kind of decided nowadays or at least science has decided is that there's a mix of both that nurture and nature both play a huge role um due to this there's this thing called polygenetic inheritance which shows that there's no such thing as like one gene that codes for one thing obviously genes they code for proteins not traits proteins can impact your traits but genes specifically code for proteins now there's a lot of proteins that will work together to influence what traits you have and how your body works and all of that but genes specifically or at least as long much as i do no, do not code for traits. So there's no such thing as the height gene. There's no such thing as like the smart gene. I mean, there's a lot of people who think there is, but as far as I know, there's no such thing as one gene for one trait. This is called polygenetic inheritance. Now, there's been a lot of studies into which one, like nature versus nurture, which one has the larger effect. And such studies can be like twin studies where they take twins who have very very similar genetic if not the same genetic inheritance like the same genetic material they take them and study either separated twins or twins that grew up in the same household and then they compare them to see is it more nature like if they grew up in the same household and they have the same genetics then that's kind of like the control group but then you take the ones that have the same genetics because they're twins and then you take ones that were separated and see if they have similar attributes or if they're different now, this would be indicative that if they were the same, they would have very strong genetic um, underpinnings. So the genetics would have a very, very strong leading to why someone has specific traits. However, if they were not that similar, that would lead more to a nurture point of view, where the experience is what generated their similarity when they were in the control groups. So that's a little bit into nature versus nurture. Next, we're going to move on to the three stages of development. Um, this is prenatal. So we're starting, I wanted to go into the developmental theories, but I also want to go a little bit more into the biology, look a little bit about what development actually is. So it starts off, conception, you got the germinal period. That's after fertilization. The zygote begins dividing and moving down the uterus. This takes about a week followed by about a week in which the mass of cells, also called the blastocyst, and yes, I will do an episode on embryology and um, germination and all that, but we're just not going to go into the science that much right now. We're focusing on the psychology of development. So the blastocyst attaches to the wall of the uterus, and this is when placenta also begins to form, as well as the umbilical cord. Cells begin to differentiate from their stem cells, and yes, stem cells, awesome. We will do an episode on so be excited. Next is your embryonic period, two weeks after to about eight weeks. This is when the cells definitely specialize and become various organs and tissues um, of the developing em- infant. Um, the embryo is about an inch long at the end of the stage and has the basic features like teeth, nose. I'm pretty sure this is when the breeding heartbeat starts. And this is also where there's critical periods. Now, critical periods are, as you may have guessed, critical periods. They are when there is going to be a potential impact on the zygote if there's harmful things like teratogens, which are any substance or factors that can cause a birth defect. These are the critical periods of development when any exposure to those can lead to harm to the baby and um, defects. 
Next, you have the fetal period. This is eight weeks all the way to birth, which is a lot longer than all of the other periods, so you know that there's a lot of development that occurs. So this is when the organs develop and become functional, and um, the full term ends at like 38 weeks. Um, before that is um, preterm, after that's postterm. So this is when you have um, kind of like the major development of the body, sorry, the baby, and um, it's when it really, really develops into what we typically see as like full-formed um, zygote and stuff. So next, we're going to talk about afterbirth, primarily physical development. So babies, when they're first born, they have reflexes. This is a lot of innate involuntary reflexes, such as um, like crying, uh, being able to reach out, suckling. These are very innate before the brain is like fully developed. Um, they have a lot of motor development at this stage. Um, and from birth to about age two, there's a tremendous, tremendous increase in motor development. Um, there's a lot of milestones such as walking or standing, and these can be traced and to seen to compare to like how the child is doing. So next to develop is your brain. So you have about 100 billion neurons at birth. There's a rapid and exhaustive growth of the brain. So from this time, the brain from about one to three, or sorry, birth to three, like three years of age, the brain triples in weight. Now that's a lot of synaptic growth and neuronal development. So during this period, because we have so many neurons and because they're forming so many connections, this is when synaptic pruning starts. Now synaptic pruning is where we take all our synapses, which are the connection between the neurons, and we prune them to make the ones that are most important stay and get rid of the ones that aren't needed. So this is kind of developing our brain, having it be a little bit more functional and f um, increasing its efficacy. Now, your senses at this time. Sense of touch is the most developed. This is probably due to the in-womb contact, like skin to skin, um, and the really strong importance it plays um, between the mother and the child, or the father and the child, um, so or the dog and the child. I will say I was very, very connected to animals at this time in my life. So, uh, next is your sense of smell. It's also very highly developed. They have actually done studies where children have been shown to prefer their mother's milk over others. Like, they can tell. These babies are smart. Um, taste is also nearly fully developed. They prefer sweeter tastes at this time and can also distinguish, like, mother's versus non-mother milk, which is really cool. Like, I hadn't considered that. I thought babies were completely unpicky, but no, they have a preference. Now, hearing takes a little longer, and this is because some of the fluid from the womb, from the, sorry, the womb, <laughs> must um, fully exit the auditory canal. So before this happens, the hearing isn't fully developed. Now, the least functional is sight. So at this time, you have two major um, sight cells, completely forgetting the name of what they're called yet, but they're rods and cones. So rods are more for, like, um telling the difference between two objects they are more of our you can think like black and white they're more just for using like seeing difference in motion and objects and they're black and white um whereas cones are the color vision they help you have a little bit less of a fuzzy vision they provide more of the visual accuracy now rods are almost fully developed at this time like 
pretty much at birth. However, cones take another six months to fully develop. So your baby's vision is going to be a little bit of poor color perception and pretty fuzzy vision. That might be why they're constantly bumping into things. Yes. So maybe they're not dumb, but they're just a little fuzzy. So we've done the biology a little bit, the stages of gestation, and um, now we're going to go into some of the psychology. Starting off with my man Piaget. Yes, I'm really hoping I said that name right. He's French. He's Jean Piaget. He's really cool. He was a child psychologist, studied a lot of children. He had very, was known for having very detailed observation of infants and children. It helped that he did have three kids of his own, so he was very focused on child development. Now, he believed that children form mental concepts or schemas as they experience new situation and events. And he believed that they try to understand things in terms of the schemas they already possessed, which is a process called assimilation. So basically taking what they already know, like, um, let's see. So if they develop a schema, like they're told that object, it's an apple. Now that's a schema they already possess. So if they're told um, this object is an orange, they will try and relate it to that schema. So that's another form. We will go into an episode on like memory development and all the different theories of that. There's a lot of interesting things about that, but for now, we're not going to go that deep into it. So the next one is that he believed that there's also a process of adjusting old schemas to fit new information, of, which is called accommodation. So basically adjusting old ideas to fit the new. This is really, really important. So he had four stages of cognitive development. The first one is sensory motor, which is the birth to two years old. So at this time, children are exploring the world using their senses and ability to move. This is when they have the huge motor developments. They're mostly have moving from more innate reflexes to being able to have motor movement. And they develop object permanence and understanding that concepts and mental images rep- represent objects, people, and events. So they're, be able to, they're able to think a little bit more and they're able to know that just because my hands, my head is behind my hands, does not mean I'm gone. It's okay, baby. So at first, they only have involuntary reflexes, as I said, um, but they move more to voluntary and they have more curious actions and movements. So like they begin reaching for objects. They begin trying to go out and eat more things. A lot of children put stuff in their mouth. They're acting more curiously. So um, they also are able to have symbolic thought at the like at the end and ability to represent objects in one own thought, which, um, so basically symbolic thought is the ability to represent um, objects in one's thoughts as symbols, such as words and um, people and events. Okay, next we have the pre-operational stage, which is ages two to seven. This is when they develop language and concepts. They can mentally represent and refer to objects and events with words or pictures and they can pretend. So, um, they, however, at this time, do not have conservative logical reason um, or simultaneous um, considerations of many characteristics of an object. So that's one backdrop of this pre-operational stage. So they no longer have to rely on the senses and their motor skills. They can now ask questions and explore their surroundings more fully. Um, this is when pretending and make-believe happen. So it's usually when kids are in like the preschool ages, they start making friends, they start hanging out, um, asking questions in school, and going out and having 
fun times pretending and making believe. So, they, however, at this time, they do possess animism, which is your belief that everything is alive and has its own feelings like them. Basically, they have extreme personification. They're gonna walk into something and they're gonna say, I'm so sorry, like, I'm so sorry for hurting your feelings when it's just a table. It's actually kind of sweet, but we get rid of that, which is probably why people don't apologize to tables anymore, unfortunately. So, they also have egocentricism, which is the inability to see the world through anyone else's eyes but their own. So, I remember when I was younger, I was really confused because I had this thought. I was like, wait, do people think differently than me? Like, do they possess their own feelings? Before that, I really thought that everyone was like androids, like they didn't have their own feelings and stuff. Um, like, I was like, no, you must think exactly the same as me. This is egocentricism. And it develops um, really strongly at this time. So they don't have an ability to recognize that other people may have different thoughts or feelings. So children at this time are also very overwhelmed by appearances. They focus on only one feature. So they don't have like a more holistic view of the whole entire object. They only focus on one feature. For instance, this is called um, centration. And say you give a, um, it kind of applies to the law of conservation, which is the ability to understand that like altering an object's appearance will not actually change its mass, volume, or amount. So kind of like it's that famous thing where you take a glass of water that's in a shorter, stouter container and pour it into a thinner, longer one. Children will freak out and be like, no, there's more in that one. Why are you giving me the one with left? But they're actually they're the same. So they focus on only one object part of the object, that's centration. Next, we have concrete operations, that's seven to 12. Children become more capable of conservative and reversible thinking. Now, reversible thinking is being able to mentally reverse like an action. So say part of the reason why children in the pre-operational stages um, have trouble with the law of conservation is because they don't possess this reversible thinking. Now, basically what that means is that they can't mentally re-pour the water back into the other cup to show that it's the same amount of water. This really hinders their ability to have that conservation. Now, centration no longer occurs at the concrete operational stage as children are able to focus on features of all the objects, like focus on all features of the object. They begin to logically think about ideas and ask questions, so they become a little bit more intuitive and curious this time. The major limitation of the stage is the inability to deal effectively with abstract concepts. So like those that do not have some physical, um, concrete, touchable reality. So things more like philosophy, ideas, all of that stuff. Stuff that can't be concrete. The last stage is formal operations. Now this is 12 years to adulthood. And it's really, really thinking. So this is abstract thinking. It, it's when it becomes possible. So this is like hypothetical concepts and philosophical thought. It's when your child gets a little moody and starts acting like Nietzsche and questioning their existence. Um, it's funny though, because Piaget did not believe everyone would necessarily get to this form of formal operations. And I'm pretty sure they did a few studies where they showed that um, given Piaget's criteria for meeting this stage, a lot of the adults in America are like probably like a fifth or something are actually considered to be there, which... I think it's funny because these, and you'll see later with our other fields of um, developmental theory, that these psychologists do not have very strong, um, hopeful ideas of how the ad like the adults of our civilization are doing. They do not believe that they're going to get very far with their field of development. It's kind of funny. So, criticism of Piaget's theory. 
there a lot of peep scientists say that there aren't distinct stages like you don't jump from being able to have no abstract thought to having abstract thought like that jump doesn't happen it's more gradual and continuous so another said that some preschoolers are not actually as egocentric as um he said and that others may develop object permanence much earlier than he thought so those are some critiques of piaget i think overall his theory is okay it does show some of the operational um development of some children and it's lasted pretty long and it's still taught obviously like i just took a psychology course and that one had its own three chapters so i will say it's still pretty big but there are some criticisms to it criticisms critis criticizations i i don't know Crit i don't know yeah we're great at speaking so Next one we're going to move on to is Vygotsky's theory. Now, he was a Russian psychologist. His name was Lev Vygotsky. He played a huge role in child's development and psychology, and a lot of his um, psychological theories are actually used in Russia today in the education system and in our own, like, America um, in just educational systems. So he played a more of an emphasis on role of others in cognitive development. So while Piaget was more focused on objects and child's, ability to like develop on their own Vygotsky really focused on others in cognitive development so he stressed the social and cultural influences um, of other people typically more skilled others so like he believed that you can learn from others who are more skilled than you and they play a huge role like your parents your teachers your friends so he believed that children develop cognitively um, when someone else teaches them by asking leading questions and providing examples of concept um, and a process called scaffolding. So he also believed in something called the zone of proximal development. Now this is the difference between what a child can do on their own and what a child can do with the help of a teacher. So say that, um, let's take me for example when I was younger, say that I um, can do fractions on my own. I can divide one number by another and realize that there are a half and a whole and kind of break a hole down into its own fractions i can do that on my own but i in no way can add them it doesn't make any sense to me however with a teacher who explains it to me i can so that is my my zone of proximal development will be the difference between adding fractions and being able to concretely know that they are fractions so um that's done with vygotsky's theory I will say that in development, there are also the development of attachment styles when you're a child. Now, I'm not going to go too much into attachment styles because I plan on doing a full episode on those. But basically, that's the, you got the secure, avoidant, um, ambivalent, and, uh, what's that one? Oh, my God. Um, I think it's disordered, maybe. It's something with a D. But we're going to go into attachment styles a little bit more because that is its own podcast. Um, it's really, really awesome, but just know that your attachment style generally, generally, sorry, develops when you're younger, and it can have a huge impact on what your attachment style is when you're older. So kind of like how you interact with other people, how secure you are with these relationships and all that stuff. So next, we're going to look at moral development. Now, this was a field really dominated by the Harvard professor, Lawrence Kohlberg. So he had his three levels of moral development. So the first one was pre-conventional morality. This occurs in very young children. Um, he didn't have a specific age gap, but very young children. So this is when the morality of an auction action is based on the consequences. So actions that get rewards are right and those that get punished are wrong. So say your kid steals a cookie from the cookie jar. That 
action will be will usually go to reprimand reprimand oh my god reprimanding from a parent this will be a bad action considered by the child that's their morality however if say they get a good grade on their test that's going to be encouraged by the parents and they'll be like oh that's great i did that good that's children that's pre-conventional morality next is conventional morality now this is older children adolescents and actually most adults again psychologists at this time <laughs> seem to believe that adults did not get much further than the regular um, development styles so can conventional morality and action is moral if it conforms to the rules of society and wrong if it does not for instance it is wrong to steal so even if someone is starving we, they can't steal that's wrong that goes against the laws of society However, this leads on to our next one, which is post-conventional morality. Now, this is about a fifth of the adult population. Now, this is when morality is now determined by the experiences and judgments of the person, even if that judgment dis like doesn't agree with the societal rules. So, an example of this would be like the guy who's starving. He, of life is its own value. We value life and the ability of this man to continue living. So it's okay if he steals in this part. Even if it goes against society, he's allowed to live. And if he's stealing from someone richer, that goes for my own morality. And I believe it's okay. So the criticism of this is that it was male-orientated and Western-focused because um, Kohlberg only studied men in his study. And there's a lot of belief that men and women differ in their morality. Um, while men may focus more to like the consequences, women may focus more towards whether it hurts people or not. I'm not really sure having a male oriented solely men in a study is kind of a lurking variable for me, but, um, his moral development seems to have hold up in a lot of fields. Next, we're going to focus on to the, one of the greats, Erickson. He was huge in the theory of development. So he started off with identity versus rule confusion. So this is when, in teenager development, when most um, teenagers have to choose between many options for values in life and beliefs concerning all their aspects of their life. So this is when they have to identify their identity and um, basically find out what makes them different from everyone else. And what makes them them really it helps them identify how they what they value what beliefs they hold what religious beliefs they hold how they would treat other people how they want to be treated by other people and then if this isn't gone through it has real confusion where they can be like where do i fit in how what am i who am i do i like the taste of strawberries i mean obviously it's going to be a little bit more like deep than that but I don't know. Someone may think liking the taste of strawberries is a huge part of their identity. I don't know. They could be a strawberry man. So, Erickson's theories. These are the stages of development. So, stage one, trust versus mistrust. This is a birth to year one. Usually, it's said 18 weeks. Um, 18 months, sorry. So, this is the most fundamental stage in life. It's, um... Basically, because the infant is dependent, developing trust is based solely on the actions of the adult or their parents or their caregiver. So it's really dependable in, um, on, of the quality of how their care is given. So if it's successful, the child feels safe and secure, whereas if they're unsuccessful at this stage, they have a lack of trust in others. This can be rebuilt by hopeful, um, like it's called hopeful, like transition, where the through the process of the caregiver not maybe giving them what they need in that time but then 
kind of like making up for it later. This can be given into hopeful success of this stage, but unsuccessful will result in a lack of trust of others. Stage two is autonomy versus shame and doubt. This is 18 months to two to like three years. This is when children start to gain independence and perform basic actions on their own, such as making simple decisions about how they play. Um, and this is when they have a greater sense of personal control. So he, Erickson believed that potty training was especially important in the stage, believing that like if children can develop kind of like the ability to go to the bathroom on their own, this will be hugely um, important in the success or failure of this stage. So success results in feelings of autonomy. They have a trust in their self, whereas failure means that they're left without a sense of personal control. They usually have shame and doubt in themselves. So this can hinder. And remember, each stage is built upon the last one. So if you have a problem or a failure in one stage, it'll lead to a really strong er, correlation of having failure in the next stage. So stage three is initiative versus guilt. This is ages three to five. So this is in your like preschool years, your formative years, when you're beginning to assert power and control over the playground. So basically, you're the ruler. You can direct your own sense of play in social interactions. And a success would mean that you have a sense of purpose, a capability. You're able to leave. You're not a sheep. Whereas if you have failure at the stage, you might have a sense of guilt or self-doubt or lack of um, basically ability. So this means that they may feel guilty because they exerted too much control or too little or they were met with um, a lot of people didn't really like how they were acting. This can result in failure. Now the next stage is stage four, industry versus inferiority. This is about six to 11 years. This is your early school years, elementary school, it's when, in middle school, it's when you're going through social interactions, Be children begin to develop a sense of pride in their accomplishments and their ability. They're doing well at school, they have a lot of friends, they're playing well in sports, they're beginning to develop some pride in their own ability. It goes a lot with initiative and their autonomy. So remember, it builds up on the other stages. Now success would result in a sense of um, completeness, a sense of competency, a sense of pride, um, a sense of accomplishment and belief in their own accolades. Whereas failure results in a feeling of inferiority, like they're not capable, they're not good enough. Um, this can be really influenced by teachers and parents. Now, they might not know they're doing this, but if you constantly focus on children who are doing well, you are further encouraging them to do well. But if you don't focus on children and don't give them like attention to kids who are struggling, this can further perpetuate their cycle of fearing inferior. Now, teachers might not know they're doing this, but it can be really, really important at this stage in development, what the teacher does and how they interact with children. Now, stage five is identity versus confusion. This is about 12 to 18 years. This is when we talked about earlier. It's identity confusion and the idea of sense of self. So this is when it takes place often during the turbulent ages of adolescence and your teenage years. You're trying to figure out who you are. It has an essential in developing a sense of personal identity, which will influence behavior and development for the rest of a person's life. This is when you figure out what music you like to listen to, what people you like to hang out with, what you like to do with your life. It's when you really start to narrow down who you are. So they need to develop a sense of self and personal identity. Now, this doesn't always happen at the teenage years. A lot of people can fluctuate between what they enjoy, but this is when you have your most formative, integral part of your development in like your sense of self. So success would result to staying true to self. Failure would be rule confusion and failure to meet this, like understand who you are. Now identity is kind of a complex topic, but for this, let's just consider it as um, your fundamental idea of your values, your sense of self and your beliefs. 
this is just a basic idea of what identity is. It's kind of like consciousness. It's hard to describe. But for this, for all points and methods of using it for now, this is what we're going to use identity as. So stage six is intimacy versus isolation. Sorry. It's 19 to 40 years old. That's a huge gap. Biggest gap. Um, this is when the young adults form intimate, loving relationships. It can be with friends or lovers. A success results in strong relationships. A failure may result in loneliness and isolation. Like, if you feel like you're not um, connecting well with others, you're going to isolate because you're embarrassed or you don't feel like it's worth it. But then this can lead to further perpetuation of being unable to form those strong relationships. And this is a really key point of development for relationships. Now, Piaget, um, not Piaget, sorry, Erickson, believed a strong sense of personal identity, as I said, builds upon the previous stages is really important to developing intimate relationships you got to know who you are i mean obviously you don't need to know who you are it's kind of like that saying you got to love yourself before you can love someone else you have to know yourself and be able to connect to what you value before you can share those values with someone else because how are you going to be able to like understand what you want in a loving relationship if you don't understand what you want at all so stage seven is generativity versus stagnation now, this is 40 to 60 years old, 65 years old. This is when you have the feel the need to create and pass things on that will outlive you. So you're beginning to realize that you're getting close to dying. I know it's kind of morbid, but you want to create a legacy through your kids, your achievements, or accolades. Basically, you want to contribute to life, to know that you did something purposeful, that you pass something on through when you do die. So um, a failure would be... Um, kind of feeling like you have a shallow involvement in the world, you were unproductive, uninvolved, kind of like want to do things over again. Whereas a success is productive, proud, you have feelings of accomplishment, you feel comfortable, you know that you can continue on in your life knowing that you left something on. You can pass on to the other side and know that you left something, the world a better place. Or not even a better place. Maybe you're a villain and you want to know that you left the world a worse place, but you know that you left the world in a changed or altered state that is different based upon your own actions so the last stage is integrity versus de despair now this is when you're like 65 years old to your death this is focusing on reflecting back on life basically you look back take stock and see how you did so you determine if you are happy with how you lived or if you're not you may regret your choices so failure is when you feel that life has been wasted and you experience regret bitterness and despair Success will be more like you feel you're well-lived and satisfied. This is when you can sit on your front porch, look out at the sunset, and be like, damn, I did well. I have a good family. I had a good job. I beat up that kid when I was in sixth grade when he stole my lunch money. I did well. Whereas failure would be more like, damn, I should have gone after her. I really should have. She was the love of my life, and I didn't. But basically, you get what I mean. You have, feel like your life has been wasted and you experience a lot of regret. Now, last theories that we're going to talk about. Wrapping up, guys. Pay, pay attention to this last thing because this is going to be kind of critical for some of the new theories of physical and psychological aging. So, we have the cellular clock theory. That's the belief that, if you guys have ever heard of Hayflick, it means that cells are limited in the amount of divisions they can do to repair damage. Basically, cells only have a specific amount of times they can replicate. Now, this is um, this was proposed by Hayflick, who there's like a Hayflick amount that is like the amount of cells. I think it's around like 40 to 60 cell divisions, or maybe it's 20 to 40. But um, this is proven by the existence, well not proven, but supported by the existence of tel telomeres. Now telomeres are the end sequences of your DNA, and I'll go more into this when I do a 
episode on DNA replication because telomeres are pretty awesome. Um, they can be used in this theory of aging and cellular death and stuff. But basically, the existence of telomeres um, proves that there are some like a limit to how many times a cell can divide because telomeres are the end sequences of your DNA. They basically are kind of like this buffer zone because each time your DNA replicates, a little bit at the end isn't copied. Now that means that each time the telomeres get shorter and shorter. Now these telomeres act as a buffer so that every time we're not losing genetic material, we're just losing some of these repeating telomere sequences. Now some, um, and some bacteria and cells have this enzyme called telomerase, which can lengthen the telomeres to make sure that a cell can keep dividing but normal mitotic cells do not have this so this can lead to the cellular clock theory which means that cells are limited so basically you can't keep repairing all your cells in your body um, so that leads to aging the next one is the wear and tear theory which is pretty basic it's stress physical exertion and bodily damage kind of like build up over time and your body's organs and cell tissues wear out with repeated exposure to damage and stress so damaged tissue accumulates and um kind of like produces the effects of aging. This is kind of like an example of this would be like your collagen. As you get older, your collagen is supposed to be really stretchy. And when you're younger, you, you, like you can notice your skin is stretchy. It'll, when you pull it, it'll like go back. But when you're older, it's a little bit less stretchy and it sags a little bit. So that's kind of an example of the wear and tear theory. The last theory is the free radical theory. This is when you have reactive oxygen species or free radicals. They're basically, they have an extra electron, they want to give it up, they're really, really, really reactive, um, they can be produced, these are like ROSs, which are reactive oxygen species, are produced, they're natural byproduct of metabolism, um, in your mitochondria, we will do an episode on slow respiratory, I'm sorry, I have so many episodes I need to do, but just bear with me, um, be excited, so this can occur by the incorrect oxidation of O2. So O2 is your final electron acceptor at the end of this um, oxidative phosphorylation pathway. So sometimes when O2 accepts those electrons to be converted to H2O, it can be incurred in about 4% of the time, it's um, reduced incorrectly. So it can go to um, dihydrogen dioxide and it can be, um, or other forms like, they have peroxides and superoxides. Those can be, the, basically the oxygen is reduced incorrectly, which makes it more super unstable, really, really reactive. Now these really, really reactive species will basically react with all your tissues and damage them. Um, basically kind of like, think of it as like, your body's trying to maintain homeostasis. Everything's trying to work. But these reactive species are like that really, really annoying friend who wants to talk to you all the time. And you're trying to maintain your chill and do things about your life. But this person keeps nagging you and nagging you, nagging you and wants to talk to you and wants to react with you. It's disrupting you. So the last thing I will talk about. Oh, yeah, sorry. So um, ROS is basically the more and more accumulation of them as you age because you have natural byproducts. It'll just, we have things that try to break them down, but it's, this theory says that as you age, they build up and they accumulate and do more and more and more damage until your cells just age and break down. And that's the free radical theory. Now, this is all kind of depressing because it's about aging and death and no one wants to age. That's why we have so many things on Amazon telling me that I can to protect my skin and I can stop my aging and there's fountain of use and no one wants to age basically um which is why telomeres are so awesome because that would be really cool if someone could find out how to lengthen telomeres but no okay not getting into that right now I'm gonna leave you guys off with something a little bit more exciting um or hopeful at least um is the f activity theory now this is a theory that says that um 
elderly people can adjust more to aging and can become more um, happy with it and even decrease the effects of aging if they retain the ability to be active, like remaining active. Like these people go out, you might see older people who volunteer at libraries to read books to children, or they work with their kids or their grandchildren, basically maintaining activity. You've heard of the use it or lose it theory. Um, that's kind of a huge postulate of anatomy. Use it or lose it. You use your muscles, they'll get stronger. If you don't, you're gonna lose them, they're gonna atrophy. Basically, if elderly people stay active, stay involved, they can kind of, not completely reverse, but they can kind of put off the feelings um, and effects of aging. So that's where I'll leave you guys off. Again, thank you so much for listening um, to another episode of Science Unscripted, and I look forward to talking to you next one.